Rick Hoyt was born in 1962, a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Rick was unable to control his limbs or speak. Dick shared in an interview at one point as a family, we had long since learned how to interpret our son's smiles and nods. But as good as everyone in the family was about figuring out what Rick needed, we were still only making educated guesses. To overcome this daunting obstacle of understanding their son and their brother, the family worked with the engineering department at Tufts University to create the Tufts Interactive Communication Device. In the Hoyt household, it became known as the Hope Machine, as it enabled Rick to create sentences by pressing his head against a metal bar. One day, Rick asked his dad to enter a charity race. It was a five-mile benefit run, but there was a twist to his request. He wanted to run with his father. Dick, who had never run a race before, would have to push his son's wheelchair at the same time, and that's exactly what he did. Dick pushed Rick in his wheelchair the entire distance, finishing next to last. But from there, they improved. Rick Hoyt told the New York Times in 2009 with the help of his computer voice program, when my dad and I are out there on a run, a special bond forms between us, and it feels like there is nothing that dad and I cannot do. The two then completed more than 1,000 races together. They competed in 32 Boston marathons. They also biked and ran across the country in 1992. Rick Hoyt told Sports Illustrated in 2005, my dad is the father of the century. Rightly so. In 2010, Dick Hoyt wrote a book called Devoted, the story of a father's love for his son. There is no doubt at all that the love Dick Hoyt had for his son was real and deep and demonstrated with action. Sometimes I think we hear stories like this and we feel inspired to look at our challenges with hope. We look around us and say, well, I can do this based on that example. I can conquer. I can win. I can accomplish this. I can push through. And then other times we hear stories like this and we feel bad because we don't know if we have the fortitude and the drive to do something like this or to love in that way. And then we read things in scripture like this, John chapter 15. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. These are the words of Jesus here. And to be honest with you, I think they sound a bit overwhelming. Like, really, Jesus? You want me 
to love as you have loved and you want me to be willing to lay down my life for my friends? Jesus, have you seen my friends? <laughs> Today we want to consider the virtue of love. And perhaps this is one of the biggest and the greatest topics in all of the known world. Philosophers have opined about love from the beginning of time. Artists seek to create what looks and sounds like love. And people desire to give and receive love from each other. This is part of the human story, which would make us wonder, are we getting better at actually loving each other? Is it happening? Is it? Are we becoming more loving as a result of all of the content thrown at the virtue of love? After all of the discussions, all of the art, all of the songs, all of the sermons, are we actually becoming more loving? Well, a cursory look at headlines would say no. So what should we, as the body of Christ, do? Well, one response is to withdraw and to hide from culture or at least ignore it so that we are not impacted in any way. That's one response. Just kind of put our heads in the sand and hope for the best. Another response is to get mad and to scream and yell and hope for a turnaround of some kind. Or another response is to simply love the way Jesus asked us to love and in the way he demonstrated love while he was here on earth and engage the world and the culture around us in such a way that I love what Nancy Piercy says, it gives hope to the lost and the lonely, the hurting and the hopeless. What if we tried that? It is Sunday, July the 10th, and we begin the third part of our theme called Rooted in Christ. The final part of this lays out 10 virtues that God wants to grow and develop in our lives. We begin with the virtue of love. And I would encourage you to take your Bible or your device and join me in the New Testament book of Mark chapter 12. This was our scripture reading for today. And what we find in this great chapter is that Jesus is having a conversation here. He's teaching and he's conversing with people and he is asked a question. Here's what we read in verse 28. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And then what Jesus does is he rolls out what is referred to as the Jesus Creed. And we spent 11 weeks last summer thinking about what Jesus says next. He breaks it down this way. Here's verse 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
The second is equally important, and here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or love those in your world as yourself. So love the Lord your God with everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I want you to add to that, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's interesting that in this particular text in Mark chapter 12, Jesus uses a specific word for love. And I would encourage you to highlight and underline in your Bible. So in verse 30, underline or highlight the word love. You must love the Lord your God with everything inside of you. And then we see this word again in verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. It's so fascinating that Jesus uses a very specific word in verse 30 and verse 31 for love. It's the Greek word agape. And it is a God-driven love that is deep, that goes beyond surfacey feelings and emotions. It's a God-driven love that is very deep. C.S. Lewis talked about agape love as the unconditional love of the Father given to us through his Son that is different than affection, friendship, and romantic love. What's interesting to me about this is in English, we only have one word to describe how we love. I love going to the shore. I love watching Rocky movies. I love ice cream. And I love my wife. We only have one word to describe all of that. And hopefully there is a difference in how we love these different categories. I believe it is fair and very safe to say, based on what we see in Scripture, that love for our spouse should supersede our love for ice cream. That should happen. You can have that argument on your own. The point is, we only have one word to describe all of this. I love coffee, and I love Jesus. Well, hopefully my love for Jesus is a little deeper than my love for coffee, although on some days it probably does work in the opposite direction. We only have one word to describe how we love. Jesus had options in saying, here's how you should love the Lord your God, and here's how you should love the people around you. And he uses the unconditional and sacrificial word for love to answer the question presented to him in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is saying, love God that way. With sacrifice and with everything inside of you. And oh, by the way, love other people that way as well. Be unconditional and sacrificial in your love for God and for other people. That brings us to our big idea. By God's grace, let's be the kind of church whose love for God flows into love for others. I believe this is what God desires for us. This is our destination. It's where God is taking us as a faith community. By God's grace, let's be the kind of church whose love for God in sacrificial and unconditional ways then spills over into our love for other people. What does that actually look like, though? 
It's one thing to say that, but if we were to love this way as described by Jesus, a God-driven love that is deep, it's unconditional and sacrificial for God and for each other, what does that actually mean and what does it look like? Well, please follow me to the New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 11. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Dr. Modica talked to us and he read from Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I want to read them again because something jumped out to me and I've done some more research on it and I want to share that with you because I think this gives us a picture of how we are actually supposed to love in unconditional and sacrificial ways. It's very specific. So here's Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And that's a key city, and we're going to come back to that. Both of them stayed there in Antioch with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians, and nothing else is added to that. It's in Antioch. They're just first called Christians. There was something about the way they behaved that people looked at them and said, you are with that Jesus the Christ, right? That's you. You must be a Christian. And they were first called Jesus followers or Christians in the city of Antioch. I found that to be fascinating, so I began to do some research on the city itself because what happened in that place and why would people say of apprentices of Jesus there that you are Christians? And what I found is absolutely fascinating, and I want to share this with you. Allow it just to fall into your heart and think about how you can give sacrificial and unconditional love, not only to God, but also to other people as well. As we seek to cultivate and allow God to grow in us the virtue of love. In Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity, he shared that Antioch, which is located now on the border of Turkey and Syria, was tightly packed with people living in close proximity to each other. Antioch was about two miles long and about one mile wide. It was small because initially the city was a fortress. People went there to find safety from those who would attack. In that space, the city's population at the end of the first century was approximately 150,000 people. So it's a large city, a lot of people in a very small space. That would give Antioch a population density of 75,000 inhabitants per square mile, or anywhere from 117 people per acre to 195 people per acre based on the number of public buildings, which is a little hard to determine in an ancient city. So for those of you who live on a half acre or more, imagine hundreds of people in that space. For perspective, Manhattan Island has about 100 inhabitants per acre. So Antioch would have been more packed and condensed with people than even Manhattan. Sewage and sanitation was a severe problem. Sewers were generally just open ditches. 
So you can imagine the stench. Stark talked about the constant companion of filth, insects, and crowding, which brings disease. There was no Wawa. It's not in Stark's book, but should be, in my opinion. In addition to the challenge of overcrowding, social chaos and crime were a problem with night being a time of great danger where people would do their best to barricade themselves into their small quarters and hope for the sun to rise in the morning with no issues. And then there were natural and social disasters as well. Antioch probably suffered from significant earthquakes with eight of them being so severe that it pretty much wiped out everything and they had to rebuild. At least three killer epidemics struck the city with mortality rates rising above 25% each time. There were famines. An accurate portrait of Antioch in New Testament times just describes a city, and here's what Stark says, with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. A city where the average family lived a squalid life in filthy and cramped quarters, where at least half of the children died at birth or during infancy, and where most of the children who lived lost at least one parent before reaching maturity. I think it's fair to say, when you investigate and look at the city of Antioch in New Testament times, that these are very tough living conditions. Imagine no air conditioning. Just that alone is enough to be a shocker. Yet in Antioch, people were identified for the first time as Christians. So it's in this mess, in this disaster, in these less than ideal living circumstances where people said, you are doing something and you must be with Jesus the Christ. What was it? What were they doing? Well, I believe there were three things that they did in imperfect ways, but it sounds like this. They loved each other. Certainly their fellow Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ, but they also loved the people around them who were probably unlovable on many days. Second, they loved their city and its mess, which is astonishing to consider when you think about what Antioch was in ancient days. But they loved their location and all of its mess. And then, number three, they acted. They did things. As followers of Jesus, they made things around them better as best as they possibly could. And they had a lot of opportunity to do that because Stark goes on to say, let me merely suggest here that Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, 
Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. What I am going to argue is that once Christianity did appear, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. It is into these cities, like Antioch, and other New Testament types of cities that were very similar to this, that Christians brought unconditional and sacrificial love, love for God that flowed into their love for others and their love for their surroundings, and it worked. It worked. It's one of the reasons that Stark claims Christianity exploded and became the dominant religion because of how Christians like these individuals in Antioch, began to love God in unconditional and sacrificial ways that overflowed into their love for others. They built real relationships, and that led to real significance for them in their context. So, things are a bit different than ancient Antioch and what we experience today. We have indoor plumbing, and that's certainly a positive but there's still a lack of love. We know that to be true. We feel that. We sense that maybe towards each other, but even more so for those who may oppose how we think and how we feel. There's still a lack of love. Our culture is fragmented in so many ways. It's difficult to list. And it seems that many and this is just my opinion, it's my speculation, that many people live off of feelings and external identity markers. I'm this or I'm that, and these external identity markers only tend to divide and cause more problems. In Antioch, right? In Antioch, a messy place where it was difficult to live at all, let yet live for Jesus. It's where believers were first called Christians, and I think it's because they loved God, and that then spilled over into their love for their city and their love for others. So here are our three takeaways. As we think about the virtue of love and allowing God to cultivate that in our lives, number one, Let's love each other, shall we? In unconditional and sacrificial ways. And maybe it looks like dichoit, or maybe it looks like what we see in Antioch, or maybe it looks like what is real to you in your context and the challenges that you face where you live, work, and play. But let's choose to love each other in unconditional and sacrificial ways flowing from our love for God. And then number two, let's love our communities. I believe God has uniquely placed us where we live. And students, where you go to school isn't necessarily just by luck. I believe God has placed your family in that district or you choose to go to a particular school for a reason so that you can be a bright light in that space. And it's not by accident you work where you work and you live on the street 
where you live. I believe God wants you there. And without us even knowing about it, God providentially places Christ followers in these spaces so that we can love our communities and their messes. Not necessarily hide and ignore it, but to engage and to allow our love for God to flow into our love for our cities and all of the mess that is involved there. So let's choose to love our communities. And then number three, let's act. It's what the believers in Antioch did. They just started making things better. And it wasn't always about an argument. In fact, it may have been very little about arguing anyone into understanding who Jesus is. It seemed to be in very practical ways that they just started making things better around them. So all of you are gifted and skilled in different ways. And God has placed you where you are. Where you live, work, and play. Make things better as a follower of Jesus. A question for us to consider. What does God want you to sacrifice so that you can love this way? What does God want you to sacrifice? May God give us all the courage and the strength as we walk out of this place in just a few moments to live out the Jesus creed of loving God and then allowing that to spill over into our unconditional and sacrificial love for Jesus. May God help our church to be that kind of place. Father, we come to you really with humble hearts on this day. Humble because life seems to be challenging. And as we have looked at Antioch and how followers of you lived in, in that context, in that environment. Seems a little shocking that it happened in a place of squalor and pain and great loss, earthquakes, famines, disease. People didn't live long in that context. And yet there were people there who were trying to live the story of Jesus. And there's no doubt they did it in imperfect ways because that's a hard environment. But they did it. And research tells us that they made a significant difference. They pushed back the darkness. They chose to act and improve things. They made stuff better around them. And through that, people saw Jesus. God, in comparison, most of our lives are much, much better. Certainly, we have issues and pain. We experience loss. but I think you have blessed us in so many ways. I know I feel that. So God, my confession to you on this day 
is I don't know if I always allow my love for you to flow into my love for others in unconditional and sacrificial ways. I often look out for me. And I confess this to you. Help me to be a a better follower of Jesus, a better apprentice. And by your grace, to remember your tremendous sacrifice on my behalf and then to allow that to impact people around me. And God, I, I pray that over everyone in the room here and everyone watching online, help us to love you in unconditional and sacrificial ways and then to allow that to impact the people around us as well as you cultivate in us the virtue of love. God, we hear this topic so much. It's something we probably dismiss as unimportant and maybe we feel it's impossible and it can't happen, but I I believe it can and I believe you're calling this assembly, this body of believers to take what we know of you and to extend that to others in how we love and act toward them. So maybe right now, as we walk through this, you you just need to confess a little bit, perhaps, that your love is low or weak for God, for others. Just talk to God about that and ask him to help you live out what we see in Mark chapter 12 about loving God in unconditional and sacrificial ways and loving our neighbors or those in our world the same way. Just talk to God about that. Do business with him. Allow him to change you. Allow him to cultivate the virtue of love. God, you're probably dealing with all of us in different ways. Help us to take whatever it is that you have laid upon our hearts and help us to act. And God, would you help Valley Point to be the kind of place, the kind of faith community that just lives out the Jesus creed. Help us to do it. It's hard. It's challenging, but they they did it in the days of Antioch. And I think we can do it in our days in our surrounding communities. So help us to love you in unconditional and sacrificial ways and help us to allow that then to spill over in how we treat the people around us and how we love them. Help us to act. Help us to be the kind of church that does things, that makes things better everywhere that you take us. Help us to live that way, we pray in Jesus' name.